Judges chapter 3, if you want to join me there. And if you read ahead in this section of the book of Judges, uh, this is one of those chapters here in the Bible where I can't imagine any kid, certainly a young boy, would think that the Bible is boring. Uh, because you'll see in this chapter tonight, if you didn't read ahead, there are some rather interesting descriptions and details that uh, God records for us. I mean, this is just kind of one of those action-packed uh, story chapters in the Bible here that any young kid would be like, wow, the Bible is really cool. So if you're, if you're ever looking for something to want to maybe turn on one of your young kids, especially a young boy, he, the, Judges chapter 3, this is the chapter for, for, for young guys. They would just really love this, some of the stories that are recorded here in this section of scriptures. We continue to look at this time in Israel's history where uh, really just a low point for them morally and spiritually, rather than embracing God's plan for them, rather than uh, accepting all that God had intended for them to occupy the whole land, to drive out of the promised land, their enemies, uh, and those who would just hinder them spiritually, uh, they instead uh, opted to not embrace all that God had for them, just like you and I. The Bible tells us that all spiritual riches and uh, the wonderful things of Christ are available to us, and yet as Christians, so often we forfeit uh, the complete enjoyment and experience of all that God's made available to us in Jesus Christ because of our lack of faith or just our unwillingness in our spirit or sin that we tolerate in our lives or uh, just a lack of obedience to yield fully to all that God's intended for us. And, of course, we see the same happening with Israel in regards uh, to the people in that land. It tells us that they didn't cease from their own doings, that they, as a result of that, did not drive the people out of the land and as a result, they just continue to not only struggle with their enemies, but more than that, as we talked about last week, chapter 2 describes how they just go through this cycle uh, multiple times throughout the history of the next few hundred years. The Bible tells us that this is a time in Israel's history when there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And they just continued to go through this chronic cycle as a people where uh, they would rebel against the Lord and then because they would rebel against the Lord and they would disobey God and disobey his word and enter into idolatry and turn away from the Lord, then they would find themselves enslaved to sin and, and to the bondage and the consequences of that, God would allow one of their enemies uh, to take over possession of, of sort of the land and ruling over them for a time period and their, their disobedience would lead them to enslavement and then after a while they'd get miserable and they would cry out to the Lord in their misery and God would have mercy and grace and compassion and he would raise up one of these judges, again remember not judges in the sense like that we think of a judicial judge uh, in a courtroom, but these were little uh, saviors, if you would, uh, little deliverers, uh, gods with a little g, who would come in, the Lord would raise them up, pictures of Jesus in some ways, who would come and would save them out of their enslavement and out of their misery, and this judge would liberate them, sort of in a military sense, and then peace would come over the land, and they again would have rest and enjoyment, and then not too long afterwards, they would just turn right back again to the same sins and to the same patterns, and the cycle would just start all over again. And there was just this miserable, unnecessary, vicious cycle that went on for hundreds of years in Israel's history that was unnecessary. And really, at times, if we're not careful, this can be the cycle spiritually, as we said last time, for all of us. 
if we are not careful, we perhaps can slip into that same cycle rather than have consistent spiritual growth and maturity and walking in victory. Certainly we all stumble, but it is never God's will that we just enter into this sort of hamster wheel of a spiritual experience where we just go through these cycles of sin and bondage and then we cry out, oh God, get me out of this. And then God comes through in his grace and his faithfulness. And then 15 minutes or 15 days later, we just go right back into the same stuff again. And then this vicious cycle just goes around and around. And this was a time in Israel's history when that was the case. And as we come to chapter three tonight, we now actually begin to see some of this cycle playing out. We see a few of these judges or deliverers begin to come upon the scene. We'll look at chapter 3 this evening. Chapter 4 and 5 really uh, cover the story of, of Deborah, so we'll probably cover that next time. But look at me in verse 1. It begins to tell us here, Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan, this was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it, that is the younger generation that didn't experience some of the warfare that the prior generation had. Namely, verse 3, five lords of the Philistines, and we'll see them as we progress onward, uh, the different territories of the Philistines, Ashdod and Ashkelon and Gaza, that's what that's a reference to. The Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath, and they were left, again, verse 4, that he, that is God, might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So because they would not drive out these people whom God had given them clear instruction to, remember, it didn't say that they could not. It says they, they would not. This was as a result of a lack of faith, a lack of obedience, these kind of things, a, a lack of willingness to carry out completely the will of God for their lives and to settle for less. As a result now, God, in a sense, gives them their own desire. Uh, and, and God is a God who honors our free will. He won't push us. He will give to us all that we possibly could experience spiritually, but, but here really God allows them to have the fruit, the consequences of their own doings. They choose not to drive out the people, so they remain in the land where they are. And it says here that the God then left these enemies, particularly that they really chose to, to leave there, to utilize them for two purposes in the lives of his people. Two reasons were told here in verses 1 to 4, that the Lord left these people groups that caused them challenges and problems and difficulties. They remain for a purpose, number one, to test them, and number two, to teach them, it says. God left the problems, the challenges, the difficulties in their lives, and these difficulties, problems, and challenges were, first of all, it says there, to test them. That is, that he might, verse 1, test Israel to find out not so God could know what was in their hearts but really the idea was to reveal to them their own condition it was sort of more of a self-evaluation God knows all things and when God allows us to be tested in our lives by challenges or difficulties or things that we go through uh, it's not a matter of God trying to discover 
something about us but oftentimes more than not it's a way of God proving out to us allowing us to see for ourselves where we're really at spiritually you notice down in verse 4 it says they were left that he might test them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded them so God allowed these challenges and difficulties to be there to say okay listen you say that you believe this you claim that you're committed in that way and that you will obey me and they often made great professions spiritually with their mouths remember when Joshua said as for me and my house we will serve the Lord and all the people said we too will serve the Lord and they, they made the profession of a commitment, but God had to allow for there to be some way for this to sort of be proved out. Okay, that's your talk, but what is your walk going to be like? So he allowed the challenges to be there for them to reveal the condition of their own hearts to them, as well as to allow them to develop character as they went through the tests and the challenges of the enemy opposition and the difficulties they would experience. The second thing it tells us that they were left for as well was not only that they might be tested as a people, but also that they might be taught. It says there in verse 2 that these enemies were often also left to teach them that the younger generation who had not experienced some of the warfare in Canaan might be taught to know war, those who had not formerly known it, or the idea is they did not have any experience with fighting battles themselves. So it was necessary that the younger generation, the next generation, be trained how to fight their own battles because everybody's got to fight battles battles are a part of life battles would be a part of their existence and it was necessary that this younger generation that was coming to age learn how to fight their own battles and not just how to fight their own battles but how to succeed in battle how to obtain victory which would be by dependence upon the Lord and that would make the difference of victory or defeat now certainly as we look at this it becomes a very fitting picture of our spiritual experience and really what we need in the same way these are two spiritual experiences that we also need to have in our lives we need in our lives in some measured form challenges and problems and difficulties and obstacles and even enemy opposition and those things remain in this world and in our existence jesus said in this world you will have tribulation so it's a part of this life we live in a fallen world uh, we're never going to have an experience where there is no problems or challenges and difficulties if there is ever a time when you can find your life that there's the absolute absence of any problem difficulty or challenge you might want to check your pulse maybe you've crossed over to the other side because that's called heaven in this life there will always remain god will always allow there to remain in our lives some measure and it kind of ebbs and flows in our lives and diverse trials sometimes it's this kind of trial then it's that kind of trial sometimes it's a big old trial sometimes it's maybe just a more moderate thing but there are always things that god leaves and allows that are challenges and problems and difficulties and they exist for the two of the same purposes mentioned here to test us and to teach us to test us in the sense that we need a measure of testing for the development of our character spiritually and that we might learn things about ourselves. James says it this way in James chapter 1 verse 2 through 4 he says my brethren count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or 
perseverance might be another way to state that. But let patience or perseverance have its perfect work, that is its completed work, coming to fulfillment, its intention, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So James says to us that there's a time when there comes the testing of your faith. Oh, I have faith. I trust the Lord. Well, how do you know if you trust the Lord unless your faith is tested? A lot of times we as Christians, I know this is my own experience, because we read the Bible a lot and we hear the Bible a lot, we think we're living it. We, we just automatically think, well, yeah, I believe God will God provide all my needs. I trust the Lord to provide. Then you get an unexpected bill or your bank account diminishes. All of a sudden you find out, do you really trust that God's going to provide all your needs? It's easy to say it. It's a whole other thing to carry it out, to walk out trust in the Lord. And, and there are so many things in God's word, promises and truths that we think just because we know them that we're doing them. We think that we're walking in victory over temptation because we read the truths and the principles and the precepts about these things. But unless those things are tested, we don't have a way to measure where are we really at. Do we really believe those things? Though we say we do. Do we really walk in those things? Do we really trust the Lord in those ways? Are we willing to be obedient even when it's challenging? And he says, therefore, when you fall into various trials, know the testing of your faith is happening. It's an evaluation time. Not so God can know something, but so that we can see, are we going to obey the Lord? Are we going to really trust what God's word says and, and, and let it have truth in our lives in the way that we live and respond to situations? And he says, let those trials have their perfected work that you can become complete lacking nothing god's developing it's a character process it tells us in romans chapter 5 that the that tribulation produces perseverance perseverance character and character hope peter writes about the same thing in first peter chapter 1 so again god allows these things to remain in our lives challenges difficulties even enemies for the same reason to test us reveal our condition develop our character and secondly also that we also might be taught another reason why these things remain in our lives is these become occasions where we might be taught things in the same way it says that that younger generation needed to be taught that did not know war they did not know how to deal with battles and how to overcome battles and live in victory when battles came in the same way we all to some extent continuously need to learn how to fight life's battles and how to do what's right because the reality is especially spiritually for those of us who are christians when we got saved we made peace with god but we were drafted into warfare now i know that's a contradictory thing for us we, finally i'm at peace with god <laughs> great but a horrible conflict just started in your life because now you've engaged in spiritual warfare. Paul tells Timothy to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And we understand there is a spiritual warfare. And when you got saved, you crossed over from the kingdom of light and love into the, uh, from the kingdom of darkness, excuse me, into the kingdom of light and love. And now there's a constant conflict that's going. There will always be battles. There's always spiritual warfare, which we are experiencing in this life as we try and walk in what's righteous and walk uh, in the light and to serve the Lord. And so because of that, we all have to experience to some sense some resistance, some challenges so that we learn how to fight battles so that we're not just spiritual sissies so that we learn how to have some fortitude and backbone. 
and, and that we understand, listen, everybody's got to fight some battles. And sometimes God will, Lord, why are you letting me struggle? Why this challenge? This is hard, Lord. I, I don't Listen, because God's training you. Because you have to learn how to fight your own battles. Maybe for a season of time, someone else fought all your battles, but God wants to make you a soldier of Jesus that you would learn how to fight your own spiritual battles and you would learn how to overcome your own spiritual battles and how to experience victory for yourself and not just say, well, I see them experiencing victory. God says, I want you to experience victory. You can have the same victory that guy has. You can have the same victory that gal has. You can experience the same, but we have to learn that by being taught through a process by the Lord and it's the existence of these challenges and these enemies that we deal with that often help us in the growth in those experiences. Well, verse 5 then goes on to say, Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites. Again, they didn't drive them out. They instead, this begins to show you where their problems came into play, they chose to, instead of driving them out as they were commanded to, they chose to concede and to dwell among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And verse 6, in direct disobedience to Deuteronomy 7, they then took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and they served their gods. So it seems from what we read here that they felt, Israel did as God's people, that they could just coexist with these temptations and enemies that would be there and that they would be able to coexist with their enemies and these temptations without compromising. Oh, we can handle it. We'll just dwell among them. We won't participate. We can leave this here, but we, we, we're certain we won't touch it. We're strong enough. And they felt that they could coexist with the presence of temptation. Can I tell you something? That's always a bad idea. Because when there's temptation, I want to indulge temptation. Now, maybe you're more spiritual than I am, but my flesh has an appetite. And, and part of the reason why I don't even allow certain things to have availability or opportunity or access at my disposal is because I don't trust myself. I, I struggle enough with trying to overcome my flesh. I don't need any help in the process. <laughs> I don't want to dwell among things and have things dwelling among me that are temptations. So there comes a time where I, I need to realize if I leave myself access or avenue or opportunity, I'm probably going to succumb to that. And God's people here, they basically felt they could coexist with the people God told them to drive out or they maybe didn't want to deal with facing the battles of driving out an unhealthy influence. So therefore they made allowances and they settled for their will rather than God's will. And beyond that, there was a progression. First, they dwelt with them. And then verse 6 says, then they intermarried with them. And then verse 7 says, they started serving their gods. You see how that's always a, that progression with sin. First, they just compromise. Okay, well, you, well, yeah, well, we're not going to interact with you, but we'll just let you remain. And then they begin to intermingle with them. And then ultimately, they completely give themselves over to serving other gods and turning away. Now, again... This is in direct violation to, as I said, Deuteronomy 7 and other passages where God warned them not to intermarry with the people of the land. And it wasn't ethnic. It wasn't racial intermarriage. It was a spiritual issue because they worshipped foreign gods and had other foreign spiritual beliefs. They were not to intermarry with these pagan people, these unbelievers, because God knew if they did that, that as a result of marrying people with different spiritual beliefs and values, that would turn their hearts away from the Lord. 
And that is exactly what takes place here. Notice verse 6 says, They took their daughters to be their wives, so they began to marry the people of the land, and they gave their daughters to the sons of the people of the land. So they began to intermarry, and as a result, the intermarriage with those who were not spiritually compatible resulted in what? In God's people turning away from him. It did not work like evangelistic marriage. It didn't work that way. And sometimes even God's people today still want to have this mindset. Well, I mean, I know they're not compatible. I mean, I know, I know, I know. How many times have I had that conversation? I know, I know. But you don't understand, I'm going to influence them. I'm going to bring them to church and I'm going to pray for them and I'm, I'm going I'm to, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to mommy them along to a spiritual superhero. No, you're not. They are ultimately going to turn your heart away from the Lord. That's what's going to happen. God warned his people in the days of Israel and that's exactly what happened. And the Bible tells us that we're not to be unequally yoked with someone who is not spiritually compatible to us. It tells us here they began to give their daughters to those who were not compatible spiritually to the people of the land. And what does it say? And they began to serve their gods. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 7, they forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Asherah. So uh, again, we see this pattern even throughout Scripture with Solomon, wisest man supposedly who ever lived and read 1 Kings chapter 11. It says Solomon loved many foreign women. The idea again is women who did not share belief in Jehovah God. They have different spiritual beliefs. And it says that these women turned Solomon's heart away from the Lord. And this is often what happens so often the pattern. This is why it is so important when it comes to marriage that there be spiritual compatibility. If not, great, great problems happen and people turn away from the Lord. They fall away from him ultimately. Verse 8, because they served the Baals and the Asherahs as the result of this intermingling and intermarriage and forgot the Lord. Verse 8, understandably, says, therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. God was greatly displeased because they abandoned him and there was treachery and adultery against God spiritually. So as the result, he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathahim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathahim eight years. So this becomes the first if you would, stage of the first cycle that they keep going through repeatedly where because they turn away from God, because they disobey God's word, they enter into sin to spiritual disobedience. As the result of that, consequentially, God removes his favor. He pulls back his covering and he allows their enemy to be strengthened and their lives to be turned over to an oppressor and a ruler. And it says literally they fall into bondage to this man, Kushan Rishathahim, for eight years. Years Now, interesting, this man's Kushan Rashathahim, very difficult to say. So far, so good. And I got to say it multiple times. When you look at his name, it actually, interesting, means Kushan of double wickedness. Now, I don't think his mama gave him that name. Now, maybe you know, maybe she renamed him after his toddler toddler years or something, and called him Double Wickedness. I think that's probably a nickname that he got or a title he inherited culturally over the time because of the harsh 
tyrannical oppressor that he was. Literally, his name means Cushan, man of double wickedness. So it gives you an idea of, of what this guy's tyranny and oppression and what kind of a, a ruler he was. And this individual, this man of double wickedness, was ruling and oppressing and keeping Israel in bondage for eight years. Well, that's a long time. Eight years to be in misery, to be in servitude and slavery until verse 9 says, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, he raised up a deliverer for them. But I want you to take notice. I can't help but to read stuff like that and I think, why did it take eight years? <laughs> eight years? I mean, after, what do you think, after eight months of being in bondage and slavery and oppressed and ruled and treated horribly that after eight months of reaping the consequences of your own sin and disobedience and the bondage and the misery that comes along right when we sin against the Lord and our own consequences we're eating the fruit of our own backslidings well, you know typically you would think I mean after about eight months wouldn't you be out sick and tired of being sick and tired and cry out to the Lord Lord save me get me out of this it says for eight years, for eight years, they continued to live outside of the will of God in misery, slave, servitude, oppression. For eight years, they remained in this condition. Isn't it amazing to realize how stubborn we can be as human beings? That, that we would continue to dwell in, in misery and outside of the will of God for that long? And, and what it takes to ultimately sometimes break a person's will, to truly bring them to brokenness, to repentance, to the place where they finally cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, save me, get me out of this, I'm tired of this, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. So it took eight long years in this, but verse 9 says, when eventually they cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenneth, Caleb's younger brother. So God, again, in his mercy, in his grace, they call upon the name of the Lord. And the Bible says in Romans 10, just like us, whenever we call upon the name of the Lord, we shall be saved. God doesn't hold it against them. God doesn't say, well, since it took you eight years, how about another year or two? God doesn't do that. The moment they cry out to the Lord, which again just goes to show you, what a bummer they didn't cry out sooner. As soon as they cry out to the Lord, it says he raised up a deliverer, someone, he raises up a man to go and save them. And of course, it's a picture of, of what God did so many times in history and what God ultimately did in Jesus for you and I to the greatest extent. When we cry out to the Lord, God raises up a deliverer, Jesus, who comes to our rescue to get us out of our bondage and misery. And God raises up now this first judge whose name was Othniel. Now, we saw this man Othniel earlier on. He had gone and done some military feats. And, and as a result of his faithfulness in small things, now he becomes someone who God uses in a greater capacity. He becomes the first judge or deliverer that God raises up for Israel. Verse 10 says, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathahim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan, the man of double wickedness. So the land had rest for 40 years 
years. So this man, Othniel, comes now on the scene. He's raised up, and it tells us here in verse 10, notice that this man prevailed over Cushan, the man of double wickedness. He prevailed over what the Bible refers to as double wickedness, which had ruled for a long, long time. And how did this man prevail over double wickedness, which ruled for a long, long time? Well, verse 10 gives you the very specific answer. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. That was how he experienced victory. And this is important. Take notice in this chapter, particularly, we'll draw attention to some of the ways that God brings victory. Here with this very first judge in Israel, the Holy Spirit teaches us that victory came by the power of the Spirit of the Lord. It did not come by human experience. It did not come per se by human effort or ingenuity or ideas. It did not come by anything other than by the power of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon this man. It says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now, uh, again, this just reminds us, why did the Spirit come upon him? The idea is to enable him, to empower him for the works that he did, to allow him to experience victory. This is what Zechariah 4.6 tells us, where there it says, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. It tells us in Joel chapter 2, it shall come to pass afterward, God declared there, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and my main servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And here we see these occasions. There's a few in the Old Testament where God, it says, would put his spirit upon people and his spirit would come upon them to empower them to strengthen them to be people of influence to be able to succeed in ministry or have some form of victory and God would come upon them with the power of his spirit so that they could be an effective instrument for God now when we get into the new testament the bible ultimately speaks of three different experiences that we can have with the spirit of God it speaks of how the Holy Spirit can be with us, that is, he's alongside of us, para, parallel. He's, he's with every person before they come to Christ, drawing us to Jesus, convincing us that we need to be saved. Then ultimately, the day that we open our heart to Jesus and we accept Christ as our Savior and Lord, then the Holy Spirit indwells us. Then he who was once with us then actually comes in and he takes up residence inside of us. And once you become a Christian, the day that you accept Christ, that's what happens spiritually. The Spirit of God moves inside and now he controls you from the inside out and he begins to work in your life subjectively and begins to make you Christ-like. He begins to give you the power to walk in spiritual victory personally, to live in holiness, to overcome sin, to have a relationship with God because the Spirit now lives in you but yet then the bible also speaks of a third subsequent experience that can happen in our lives where the spirit of god comes upon our lives as is referred to here that happened at times historically in the old testament where the spirit would come upon someone to give them enablement or power for some form of service or victory jesus says in acts chapter one 
John truly baptized with the water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus then went on to say in verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Again, Jesus refers to the Spirit coming upon our lives, talking to believers who were already filled with the Spirit and dwelt with the Spirit by their faith. Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit coming upon their lives and the Bible refers to it as a baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit to give empowerment, to give enablement. And this is something that honestly, just like Othniel here in this historical account that's given to us, the Spirit came upon his life and he went out and he prevailed over double wickedness in the same way. This is how we prevail spiritually. How do we prevail over enemies? How do we prevail in spiritual ministry? How do we prevail in the works of God and the things that we do? It's not by might, nor by power, nor by education, nor by experience, nor by training. Not that any of those things are wrong. It's by the Spirit of the Lord. It's by the Spirit of God coming upon our life and saying, Lord, would you baptize me with your Spirit? Would you put your Spirit upon my life so that I can have influence, so that I can have empowerment and enablement to be victorious? And tonight, if you are struggling and you're losing the battle and maybe you feel like, why am I not prevailing? Perhaps the simple answer is to take Jesus at his word. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask to ask? And I would encourage you as we worship at the end of our time tonight, perhaps it's an occasion to say, Lord, I want all of it. And Lord, I want to prevail. I want to be able to prevail. So Lord, I pray, put your spirit upon my life in a fresh way that I can be victorious in whatever it is God would have you to prevail over. Maybe it's having a greater impact in evangelism or influence in some way or to help or assist in some way to serve the Lord. So Othniel brings this victory to the people. He delivers them from this oppressor. And the land had rest for 40 years. But notice verse 11, then... Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And can you imagine what happens next? Here comes the cycle. And the children of Israel, again, as soon as he died, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So again, the Lord strengthened Eglon, a new man, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And then he went and gathered himself, the people of Ammon and Amalek, and went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. Remember, that's the area of Jericho. Verse 14, so the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, look at this now, 18 years. So you're talk about going from bad to worse. The cycle never gets better. The first time, how long did they stay in their oppression and misery before they cried out to the Lord to get out of it in repentance? Eight years. This time it was 18 years. It took them 18 years in their stubbornness to be humbled and broken and repentant to cry out to the Lord. But after 18 years of being ruled by Eglon, the king of Moab, and paying tribute to him as an oppressor, when the children of Israel, verse 15, cried out to the Lord, the cycle again, God's grace now, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud this time, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, 
interesting. Remember the word Benjamin means son of my right hand. This is a very interesting, perhaps, indication of something the Holy Spirit was telling us. He came from the tribe of Benjamin, son of my right hand, but he was a left-handed man. And by him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So uh, this man... Ehud now, who's going to be the next judge or deliverer for the people, we begin to learn a few things about him. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, and typically the predominant hand, usually more people are right-handed than left-handed, but it tells us this man was left-handed. Now, some scholars say that the Hebrew there, where it says he was a left-handed man, is not just telling us alone that he's a southpaw, that he was a lefty, but that, that terminology there, the language in the Hebrew, some say that actually is a reference to indicating that he was restricted in his right hand. That is, he wasn't just a left-handed by that was his dominant hand. I'm a better left-handed at you know working than I am right-handed. But he actually had some form of limitation in his right hand or some restriction. Maybe he was born with a defect or some handicap or something had happened. So therefore, it wasn't by choice but he was restricted in his predominant hand. He was weakened and limited, and therefore he had to learn to use his left hand, which is interesting because if that's the case, here's someone again that's used by the Lord and maybe he has limitations and he doesn't have all the natural talents and abilities and he has some restrictions and he's thinking, how could God ever use me? Because I have limitations. I have handicaps. I mean, I, what, what do I have to offer? And the reality is it was in his weakness that God actually showed power through this guy's life. And so often we think that, oh, God can't use me. I have this limitation or I'm restricted in this way. Or, you know, I, I don't. And, and the reality is, as Paul said, that God's power is perfected in weakness. That God delights to use weakened people, unlikely people. And this could be the case with this man, Ehud, who becomes the next deliverer that God raises up with some limitation in his life. And notice the way he goes about it is he's selected to be one of the people to bring tribute to the king of Eglon. So they have to pay homage as well as pay taxes. The idea here is to this oppressor and he wants to have an opportunity to deliver them. So somehow he is one of the individuals who are a part of a group that brings tribute now to the king and watch what happens. It says now Ehud, verse 16, made himself a dagger, more like a, a short sword. And it was double-edged. That should sound familiar, a double-edged sword. It was a cubit, or about 18 inches long, so like a short sword. And he fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. Again, very interesting. Because he was a lefty, he fastened the sword or his weapon on his right thigh. Because typically, if you were right-handed, your weapon would be on your left side so that you could cross over and, and whip it out easily to quickly strike your victim. So his is actually on the opposite side, which probably could lend itself to the reason why he was able to get in past the security detail and have access to the king. Because if they might have fricked him, most people were right-handed. And then add on to that, if indeed he is handicapped in his right hand, when he came into the presence of the king, Eglon's secret service detail probably thought, oh, that guy's handicapped. And well, let's, they gave him a quick pat on the left thigh because that's where everybody usually wore their sword that was right-handed predominantly. Hey, he's safe. God, let him through. And the reality is God uses his limitation and God uses his left hand to be something that gives him access 
to where God was able to use. So again, God uses his deficiency. God uses something that seems to be uh, you know, a, a lack in his life and it's a part of the plan of God to use him in a greater way. So he's got this sword now. He's ready to execute the king fastened on his left uh, thigh there, or excuse me, his right thigh. And he brought in the tribute to the king of Eglon. Verse 17, the Bible's so honest. Now Eglon was a very fat man. So God's word is just direct. It's not always politically correct, but it tells us the only time in the Bible we're told that. So apparently this must have been a rather large individual. That's the only time the Bible refers to someone as a very fat man. But the vision is there for the purpose you'll see. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he then sent away the people who had carried the tribute. So he says, thank you for your tax money. Now get out of my presence. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, this is Ehud now, king, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king said, oh, shh, be quiet. Secret, Uh, nobody's going to, if it's a secret message, an oracle from one of the gods, and now he dismisses everybody out of the room. Uh, Everyone, get out of our presence. This man has a secret message for me. I don't want anyone else to hear it. So all who attended him, it says, went out from him. So they're now left alone, Ehud and the king. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And absolutely, he sure did. It was a deadly serious message, no pun intended. I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. He reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt, that's the handle, went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. Told you young kids would love this. For he, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly. The idea is it went all the way in and got swallowed up in the blubber. And his entrails came out. So he pierces him with this two-edged sword. The man is so large, it goes in. The whole 18-inch sword goes in. The handle goes in too. And it doesn't even come out. All that comes out is, it seems, the, the, the King James renders that, and the dirt came out. It seems to be a, uh, a reference there uh, to, to the feces from the bowel area, that, that the bowel or the entral area was ruptured and feces actually came out as the result of the puncture wound and the, the large sword going into him. Verse 23, Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and locked him. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look. And their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So he had locked the doors and made his escape to try and buy some time before he got caught. So as his servants came and they found the doors locked, look at verse 24. So they said, uh, oh, I guess he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. <laughs> That's a, just a very... Uh, palatable way for the Bible to say he was using the bathroom in the cool chamber area. So there, okay, he's got the door locked because he's in there taking care of nature's business. And so let's not bother him. He needs some privacy. The king's taking care of things. He's attending to his needs. He's using the bathroom. So they waited, verse 25, till they were embarrassed. And still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they then took the key and opened it, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images 
and escaped to Sariah. So here you see now how Ehud was used to overthrow this oppressor Eglon. And of course, as you look at this again, this becomes a very fitting picture in many ways spiritually of how victory is obtained as well. Eglon, think about it, the Bible describes him as a very fat, large, fleshly man. He becomes a very clear picture in many ways or a type of the flesh. Because the flesh always increases and oppresses the more it's indulged. And the more you indulge the flesh, the more it grows and the more it increases and the more it impresses and the longer it rules over and oppresses us and it becomes this big, large, ugly, miserable oppressor that just rules over us and dominates us the more it's indulged. And just like Eglon, the flesh desires not only to rule over us, but it wants us to keep bringing to it continually what it wants. Just like Egon kept saying, pay me tribute, pay me tribute, pay me tribute. That's what the flesh does. The flesh keeps making demands and saying, satisfy me, indulge me, bring me what I want, pay me my tribute. And the flesh, our sinful nature, keeps longing for more, asking for more, demanding more. And if we continue to feed it and indulge it and satisfy it rather than crucify it and put it to death, as Jesus tells us to, it will just increase and develop and rule over us in a greater and a greater way. But where does victory come from? Well, how did Ehud accomplish victory? Remember what he used? It says there back up in verse 16, he created what? A two-edged sword. He used a two-edged sword. Well, that should sound familiar. A two-edged sword that he pierced into his enemy's life. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And see, this is a picture. How do we conquer the flesh? How do we experience victory? What's another way victory is experienced in the spiritual life by the power of the Lord? But another way victory is always experienced in the spiritual life is by utilizing the word of God the sword of the spirit. And when the word of God is used, it pierces and it penetrates and spiritual victory comes about as the result. Just like this sword that was used here by Ehud, God's word, the spiritual sword, has the power to pierce people. It has the power to penetrate into people's lives in a way that's supernatural. I mean, in the way that this sword just pierced and it went in so powerfully in the same way to a greater degree spiritually, the word of God, the sword of the spirit, it's a sharp two-edged sword and it has the ability to pierce and to penetrate people's lives. In the same way that this sword was used to set God's people free, the sword of the spirit sets people free. That's what sets people free. Not programs, not philosophies, not endless counseling sessions. The Word of God, the power of God's Word going continuously into my life, being exposed to my heart, exposed to my mind. It continues to go in and it cuts out of my life and it sets me free from things that are sinful and carnal and unhealthy and wrong that want to rule over me and ruin me. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. That's what sets people free. It's the power of God's word, the sword of the spirit. And just like Ehud used the sword to do what? Defeat their enemies. 
It's the sword of the Spirit as we utilize it in our life that defeats our enemies for us. We defeat our enemies by the sword of the Spirit. It's the sword of the Spirit that puts to death what needs to be removed from our lives and releases the dirt and the defilement from within us that needs to get out of our lives. Remember, he put in the sword and it says that it went in deeply and as a result of that sword going in so deep, remember what it said? It says that his entrails, the King James, the Hebrew says literally the dirt came out. What an interesting picture. The sword went in and the dirt came out. The sword went in and the dirt came out. Oh man, there's just, I mean, I still got a dirty mind. The sword goes in, the dirt will start to come out of your mind. Oh man, my heart, there's still parts of me. Lord, I just feel so filthy. Sometimes my attitudes or my thoughts or this or that or this sin or this struggle or this part of my flesh and, and I just, I'm so, I'm, so, I'm so filthy. I want it out of my life. Well, as the sword goes in, the filth comes out. God's word, it, 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 Jesus said, Father, catharize them, the language literally is John 17, by thy truth, sanctify them by the truth. The, the literal Greek Jesus uses there is catharizo. Sanctify them by your truth, catharize them by your truth. God's word, it is like a catheter, man. It goes in and it drains out of us what we can't get out of our lives. So again, this is just a beautiful, beautiful analogy that we have as there is freedom and victory and, and the sword of the Spirit going into our lives, the same applies spiritually as what happened here with this man Ehud and Eglon. And again, if you want to experience victory in your life, so many times Christians, my goodness, that we chase all these other things. When we have the Word of God and the Spirit of God and they are fully sufficient. They are fully sufficient. Everything has been given to us for life and godliness. And sadly, so often we live in defeat and struggle and spiritual bondage and we don't have to. We don't have to because God has given us what we need. It's our role to believe the effectiveness of these things and to utilize them for the victory in our lives and the victory spiritually among God's people as it pertains to those things as well. well verse 27 says, It happened when he arrived that he then blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. The children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and then he led them. And he said to them, Notice, follow me. For the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab. That's a quick turnaround. All stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. The longest period of rest recorded in the book of Judges. And how did it all start? As the result of one man taking serious the effectiveness of a sword. One man saying, all I need is a sharp two-edged sword and I can put an end to this oppression. And as a result of him doing that and experiencing victory, he then, it says, comes back, verse 28, and he says to the people, follow me. You do this too now. Follow me. And he says, the Lord has delivered your enemies. Notice, he says, follow me. That's good leadership. Take my example. But he doesn't take any of the glory. He says, but the Lord has delivered. And the people 
are following his example. They too rally behind with their swords and they strike down their enemy. They experience victory and liberation. What a beautiful thing. God give us more ehuds that hold up the sword of the spirit and encourage God's people to rally and experience the victory that we all could have. Verse 31 then ends with one final, it seems, judge. All we're told, verse 31, is that Shamgar, the son of Anath, killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad and he delivered Israel. So, again, very interesting. This man, Shamgar, he gets one verse. (laughs) That's all he gets. But yet this man, Shamgar, says as well, was someone used mightily by the Lord. It says he killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. Now, that probably wasn't all in one battle. It's probably accumulation of different instances. Interesting, it says Shamgar used an ox goad for his weapon. You know what an ox goad is? An ox goad is basically a simple farming implement. It was an eight-foot wooden pole that had a pointy metal end on one side that was basically used to goad in the backside a stubborn ox to get it moving. And on the other side was sort of like a a flat area, uh, like a shovel-like thing that was used for cleaning off the plow. So this guy's got a simple farming instrument. He has an ox goad that was used to clean off the plow and that was used to prompt the animals. And this man uses, notice, his limited resources and what he has to serve God and to serve his people. And he becomes used by the Lord in a very effective way. Shamgar teaches us that God can use simple and common things for his purposes and for his works. God is able with what limited resources. What, what, what did Shamgar have in his hand? I'm just a farm boy. All I got is an ox goad. God said, that's fine. If you have a willing spirit and you're willing to put what you have in my hand and what you're able to do for my uses, God can utilize that powerfully. And that should be an incredible encouragement to all of us. No matter what you think that you don't have or are lacking, what limited resources, if you have a willing spirit and you're willing to offer to God whatever you have, whatever you have, Lord, this is all I have. I'm just a farm boy. I'm just this. This is all I have. But if you take what you have in your hand and you offer it to God, God can use your life in a powerful way. There is no one whose life that God can't use. And Shamgar is a great encouragement how anyone can be used by the power of God for good purposes. Let's stand. Let's pray.